0: The following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Good morning. So good to be here with you all. I had, as Matt said, I had an opportunity to get together with him and Sebastian Traeger last night uh, to talk about things going on at Chevrolet Baptist Church, and to hear about things going on going on here at River City. And it was just so encouraging to hear the reports that they shared about how well the church is doing, how the congregation's doing, and what God is doing among you. Uh, we pray for you all regularly, and uh, yeah, in any way that we can be a help to you as kind of an older brother you know, who's maybe a few years ahead. We want to be that help, but we're also just super encouraged and had opportunities even to learn from Matt and Seb last night. Uh, this is very much a homecoming for me. Uh, so I grew up 20 minutes south of here in Chester, Virginia, went to Thomasdale High School, uh, then uh, played baseball at VCU from 98 to 02, uh, and then I lived in Richmond for uh, about five years before joining the Coast Guard. So it was fun taking my family and my kids around showing them all the different places uh, that I lived and where I worked in the city. It's also, even though it's a homecoming, it's a little bittersweet uh, because uh, the years that I lived in Richmond after high school were also marked by a lot of darkness in my life. Uh, Struggling with alcohol and drugs and all sorts of immorality, Uh, I really had a hard time. So the fact that I'm preaching here to you today Uh, is a miracle to me. I'm still baffled that I'm a pastor. Uh, I don't understand how that happened to me, Uh, but it's a testimony not to my strength and my willpower to change myself. I couldn't change myself, uh, but to God's power in making sinners who are dead in their sins new creations in Jesus Christ. Praise God. And that's what we're going to hear about today from 1 Peter. So let me go ahead and pray for us again briefly, and we will look at the text. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we lift up our prayers to you. You are the the king of all creation. You hold the keys to everlasting life. We pray that it would please you to exercise your power, to save those who are lost, and to make those who are your people more like you, and that you would do it all through the preaching of your gospel, for your glory and for our good. We pray this in your mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Meet Alan. Alan and his wife, Cheryl, have been happily married for 30 years. They have three well-adjusted adult children who are all well on their way to being successful in life. Uh, though Alan and Cheryl have had a few hard seasons sprinkled in their three decades together, on the whole, they've had a happy marriage. They, they really have everything that they could want In life, Together they bring home enough to enable them to live very comfortably. Uh, They have a 5,000 square foot home in an upper middle class suburb that's almost paid off. They drive the cars that they want to drive. They take the the vacations they want to take. And though they're approaching retirement, their investments have done well enough that they're going to be able to maintain the same quality of life even while they're not working. Meet Beverly. Beverly is a 30-year-old businesswoman. Uh, she has experienced success at every stage of her professional life since getting out of college. Uh, Beverly has embraced the modern, mi- the modern mindset, delaying getting married and having kids because she has goals she wants to achieve in the workplace and because she's just having a whole lot of fun. Her free time is filled with partying in the city, weekend getaways with friends, and with her ample vacation time, she's able to travel around the world. Meet Jason. Jason is a senior in college at Virginia Commonwealth University. Because of his hard work in high school, Jason received an academic scholarship for college, and he hasn't wasted the opportunity. He's finishing as valedictorian of his class, and that after living a fairly charmed life throughout his years in college. He was part of a great fraternity, had tons of friends, a girlfriend he loves, and because of his work in computer science, he's getting a full ride to grad school and is well on his way to living The American Dream. Though these are fictional people, they also aren't. You and I encounter people like this every day. Uh, For some of us, it's our family members, our friends, our neighbors, and coworkers. My question for you this morning is why should anyone, any of these people, choose to follow Jesus? Now, I recognize I'm speaking to a room full of people who are predominantly Christians, and you're listing off all sorts of reasons in your mind about why they should become Christians, but that's not what I'm asking. I'm asking you to put yourself in their shoes, right? See the world through their eyes. Look at the life that they have, and now ask yourself, what would cause them to want to give up the life that they're living to follow Jesus? Why should anyone abandon the freedom of living for themselves, of pursuing their own dreams, and of seeking as much possible happiness, comfort, and fun this world has to offer to follow Jesus who calls us to daily take up our cross, to daily take up the suffering and sacrifice that is entailed in following. Why would anyone give up that for that? Well, in our passage this morning, we actually find three reasons why Alan, Beverly, and Jason, three reasons why your family members, friends, coworkers, and neighbors should give up the lives they're living to follow Jesus, right? So you just heard from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. If you haven't turned there already in your Bibles, I want to encourage you to do that. I want to encourage you to actually keep your Bible open throughout our time together because we're going to be looking back at the text often throughout our time. We've already heard the passage read, but I'm going to read it for us one more time maybe you can pick out what those three reasons are that people should give up living for themselves to follow Jesus. This is God's word. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. The reason why people like Alan, Beverly, and Jason should follow Jesus, and the reason why people like your neighbors, coworkers, family, and friends should give up living for themselves and live for Jesus is because only Jesus can provide that which every human heart most deeply longs for. Only through Jesus can we experience true personal change, real hope, and a secure future. If you're taking notes, those are going to serve as the main points of my message. True personal change, real hope, and a secure future. So first... Only through Jesus can we experience true personal change. Look again with me at verse 3. Peter starts by praising God because in his great mercy, he has given us new birth. Or in other words, he has caused us to be born again. Now, I want to pause real quick. And say, if you're not a Christian and your understanding of Christianity has been culturally conditioned by news outlets like CNN, MSNBC, or Fox News, and that description of new birth or being born again might make you recoil a little bit. Because at least in America, being born again or born again Christians are typically portrayed as religious zealots and Bible thumpers who all share the same political views, right? But when you strip away the cultural conditioning that has happened to that description of being born again, and you go back to scripture, where the description of being born again is found, you find a rich, multi-layered, and beautiful description of the true personal change that God offers to all people through his son, Jesus. You see, Peter wasn't the one who came up with this idea of new birth or being born again. Peter, as he does throughout his letter, is drawing on Jesus' teaching. It was Jesus who first used this description when he was describing mankind's need for true personal change. But in our modern society, when we talk about true personal change, often our minds go to things like, "I, I wish I was more organized, or I would like to be more disciplined, Or I would like to be more efficient with my time and get more things done. But that's not the type of change that Jesus had in mind when he talked about our need to be born again. The, The change that we all need is more radical than that, more serious than that. When Jesus described our need to be born again, he was actually drawing on passages from the Old Testament that looked forward to the day when God would cleanse his people of their sins and give them a new heart and a new nature, making them new creations, causing them to be born again. And according to Jesus, the reason that we all need a new nature is because all of us come into the world with a corrupt nature, and out of that corrupt nature come things like lying, or lust, or anger, or hatred, or jealousy, or greed, and so on, All right? I don't know if this is a direct quote, but I once heard that there's more empirical evidence for the, the doctrine of original sin than for any other Christian doctrine, right? You, you look around, and there's evidence for the doctrine of original sin everywhere, you see it in broken relationships, in crime st- statistics, in wars, in oppression and injustice. But here's the thing the evidence for our corrupt nature, mankind's corrupt nature, isn't just out there, it's also in here. It's also in our very own hearts, my heart and yours. Now, I understand that some of you may, may take issue with that. I understand that. Maybe you say, I, I, I don't care what you say, Pastor, That that's not me. Uh, to which I would respond with the words of Ben Stiller, playing White Goodman in Dodgeball, which I'm not recommending, by the way, when Stiller said to Vince Vaughn's character, I mean, come on, I know you, you know you, and you know that I know that I know, I know that you know that I know you. Like we we all know the same thing about one another. Like if I asked any of you, is there a perfect person in the world who has never sinned and never done anything wrong? All of you would say, "No." Because you all know what I know that everyone out there is just like you. We all have the same problems, right? Even if your life is going swimmingly. Even if you have everything you need, you're comfortable, right? All of that going on. I know that you know that something's not right. And that's not because I'm a psychic, right? But because we all know that something is not right with us. We desire things we know we shouldn't desire. We do things that we know we shouldn't do. We say things we know we shouldn't say. We think things we know we shouldn't think. We need a new nature. We need to be born again. And what most people do who recognize that something needs to change is they start making changes, right? They, start, they stop watching things that encourage sinful behaviors. They stop hanging out with friends who make bad, they make bad decisions with. They make changes to their external environment while failing to realize that the problem isn't out there, but in here, right? It's like a farmer with one apple tree. He's not much of a farmer, but he's got one apple tree. And at harvest time, he finds that all the apples that are growing on his tree are growing rotten on the vine. But rather than treat the tree, he cuts off the bad apples, goes to a grocery store, buys a bunch of good apples, and then comes home and tapes those good apples onto the tree. And you're like, buddy, that's not going to do it. Not only are the good apples now going to die, but that tree, when it produces more apples, is still going to produce rotten apples. You haven't fixed the problem, right? The problem isn't that the, isn't the new apples need to be attached from the outside. It's that the actual tree they're attached to is rotten from within. The only way to produce good, true, and lasting fruit is if the tree itself is uprooted and replaced by a healthy tree. In all of our attempts to change our environment and our behaviors on the outside to address the heart issues we have, we're like that farmer. The changes will eventually die, and rotten fruit will eventually grow again because the root cause hasn't been addressed. You may be living a comfortable life. You may have everything you think you need, but according to Jesus, If you haven't been born again, you're still under God's judgment. You're still living in sin before Him. God will judge us all for the sins we've committed, sins that grow naturally out of our corrupt nature. You and I must be born again. And here's the good news for you today you can be born again. The Christians to whom Peter was writing had already been born again. There are lots of people in this room today who've experienced this new birth, a new birth that comes when we move from living for ourselves and seeing ourselves as the center of the universe to living for Jesus and seeing him as the center of the universe, or in other words, trusting him as our Savior and following him as our Lord. Right In one sense, how do you be born again? It's it's simple. Embrace him as your Lord and Savior, and God will give you a new heart and a new nature. And in another sense, what is actually happening in the new birth is beyond comprehending and astoundingly powerful. When preaching on the new birth, the late uh, Tim Keller drew a connection between the new birth and natural birth that was extremely encouraging to me and might encourage you, he talked about the fact that none of us chose to be born, right? Nobody, nobody consulted you, nobody asked you, you were conceived, and you came into the world. And nobody said, hey, are, are you ready to come out now, right? You just, you were born, you came into the world, right? Nobody consulted us, nobody talked with us. Being born was something that happened to us, but unbeknownst to us, our birth came with great pain and cost to another, namely our mother. Though we came into the world without any recollection of the day, childbirth, even in the epidural age, is an excruciating and agonizingly painful experience for the mother. And in that, mothers provide a picture of Jesus' role in the new birth. Though we receive a new nature, Though we get to be born again, we are given the great privilege of being born again. Our birth was not without great cost to another. Jesus not only endured great agony and pain in making new birth possible, he gave his very life, dying on the cross for our sins, so that we could be born again, so that we could be given a new nature, a new heart, and a new mind. He then rose from the dead, proving that, birth, that the new birth is not only possible, but certain for all who put their trust in him. To those who put their trust in him, God removes our heart of stone, gives us a heart that beats with love for him. It's only through faith in Jesus that we can experience the true personal change of being born again by God's spirit. And to those of you who've already trusted in Jesus, consider what this means for you. You have been born again. You are a new creation. Like a caterpillar goes into a cocoon, comes out made of the same parts, but is an entirely new creation as a butterfly, right? So radical is the change that has taken place in you. You've been cleansed, your heart of stone has been removed, you've been filled with God's Spirit. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking. That this means you will no longer struggle with sin, right? Peter is about to go on to tell these Christians about the need to continue putting off and fighting against sin. But what it means is that God has given you a new nature. You now have the power to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. You're no longer a slave to your desires. You now recognize that God is God. That he is the Lord of your life and worthy of living for, which means that the most necessary change that must occur in your life has already occurred. You've been brought from death to life. And if you're a Christian struggling with sin, I want to encourage you, bring that sin out into the light. Confess it. Fight it by the Spirit And at the same time, remember that God is not going to kick you out of his family just because you're struggling with sin, right? He is a merciful God who calls sinners to come to him for regular forgiveness, for daily cleansing, right? We've been once and all justified, yes and amen. But God also says, daily come to me as your father. Daily come to me and I will shower my mercy and cleansing love upon you, right? It is so easy for us as Christians to think if we're struggling with sin that God is angry with us or doesn't want anything to do with us or maybe is going to kick us out of his family. But if, if you're a parent, if you have children and they were struggling with sin, would you kick them out of your family? Of course not. They're your two, you're going to love them no matter what. In the same way, God our father has caused us to be born again to, into his family. He's not going to kick his children out of his family just because they're struggling with sin. He calls us, turn to Jesus each day. Turn to me and be renewed in your mind. We can be certain that God, our father, won't kick us out of his family if we're struggling. He's the one who caused us to be born again into his family in the first place. Through faith in Jesus, God produces true personal change. Change. We also see in the text that he gives us real hope. That's my second point. I want you to look again at verse 3. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When we're born again or receive the new birth, we also receive real hope. It's important to understand how different the real hope of Christianity is from the hope that people normally have in this world, right? The way, the way the word hope is normally used refers to things that we want to happen or wish would happen but can't be certain will happen, right? Sometimes it's about relatively unimportant things, like I hope the weather forecast for our beach vacation changes to nicer weather. Sometimes it's about important things. I hope my new job enables me to be more present with my family. I hope my child makes wise choices. Sometimes it's about ultimate things. I hope my biopsy comes back negative. The one thing all those things have in common is that ultimately none of them are certain. The weather may change or it may not. Your new job may actually end up demanding more time than your old job. Your child may not make wise choices in life and your biopsy may come back positive. That's not the type of hope Peter is talking about here. That's not the type of hope you have as a Christian if you've trusted in Jesus Christ. Our hope isn't a wishing or a wanting for something to happen, but a certainty based on a historical event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's why Peter says we have a living hope It's a living hope because it's founded upon and grounded in a living Savior. I want you to understand this because understanding this has the power to transform your whole way of thinking and the way you experience life in this fallen world. When Jesus rose from the dead, he defeated death. He showed that death had been defeated. Let that sink in for a minute. Death has been defeated defeated. When Jesus died on the cross and was buried, Jesus was swallowed by death, right? Death with its gaping, hope-stealing jaws opened its mouth wide and swallowed Jesus whole, just as it has done to every other human being who has ever lived. But then, three days later, death got indigestion, right? Right? It thought it had swallowed another hopeless victim, but in fact had swallowed the Lord of life who died to destroy the power of death from within, right? Death began to shake and to convulse until it finally exploded to pieces like Jonah spitting Jesus out from the dead because it could not hold him. It was not possible for death to hold him because he is the Lord of life who holds the keys to life in his hands. Jesus was swallowed by the beast in order to defeat the beast from the inside out. And when he rose from the dead after having defeated death, a new dawn emerged with him. The dawn of real hope. It's a real hope or a living hope as Peter calls it because our hope is in a living Savior. And since Jesus will never die again, we will always have real hope. Real hope even in the face of the darkest possible circumstances. And you can have that hope too if you put your hope in Jesus, who is the living hope of the world. Friends, none of the things that you might otherwise put your hope in will ultimately prove worthy of your hope. Right, let's just just work this out for a minute. Let's say we have a person who is one of those rare individuals who leads a charm life at every step of their life. Let's start in high school. Let's say they were valedictorian of their class, homecoming king or queen, and a star athlete. And their big hope was getting a scholarship to play at a college of their choice. And they got it. Amazing. They're thrilled. But then their hope was fulfilled. And now they need a new hope. And their new hope is that they would get a high powered and high paying job right out of college. They work hard all four years in school. They finish at the top of their class again, and because of all their hard work, they land a high-powered, high-paying job in New York City. Dream come true. Another hope checked off the list, right? But now they need a new hope. What's next? Well, now time to climb the corporate ladder. Boom, they do. They're making millions. They're the CEO of a major company. Another hope checked off the list, but now they need another new hope. And now 30 years have passed as they've climbed the way up that ladder. So their new hope is to save up for a comfy retirement. They do. Boom, another hope checked off. But now they need a new hope. And now they're getting up there in years. What do they start to hope in now? Physical comfort comfort while they approach the end of their life? If you stare at death, you have to recognize how it steals hope, and meaning and purpose from everything. That's why the author of Ecclesiastes says, rich man, poor man, wise, fool, doesn't make a difference. Under the sun, death steals everything. I wonder what you are putting your hope in today that's gonna make it through death. What's gonna cross that deep abyss and come out the other side alive and intact? There's only one hope that will. And it's in the one who already went into death and conquered it it on our behalf and came out the Lord of life. And that same Jesus offers himself as a living hope to all who would put their trust in him today. Friends, none of our accomplishments, none of our hard work or our money or our vacations, or our material things, anything like that. Uh, Hard work, good. Accomplishing things, good. That's, That's really good. None of those things are an adequate hope for us in this fallen world. None of those things are grounds for true, real hope. None of those things can ultimately save any of us. Now, we were just thinking about the individual who lived a charm life, who checked the box on on every hope they had in life and then died, but what about the individuals who don't live a charmed life? What about kids who put their hope in being accepted by their peers but who end up getting bullied? Or parents who put their hope in their kids only to tragically lose a child? What about people who put their hopes in their work only for their company to fold or for them to get laid off? Or people who hoped in enjoying retirement who retire and then are diagnosed with a terminal illness. Friends, these things happen, and they happen regularly in a fallen world. In his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, Tim Keller wrote, no matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we have we put together a good life, no matter how hard we have worked to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable with friends and family, and successful with our career, something will inevitably ruin it. For the teens here, this is just where I want to encourage you to take hold of the living hope that only Jesus can provide. The world is going to tell you especially that you should live for yourself. Live your truth. Express yourself. Follow your feelings. Don't let anyone tell you what you should do or who you should be. And while that sounds attractive, it's ultimately an empty way to live and will only end up hurting you. I don't know if teens still do this, but back when I was in high school, one of the practical jokes we would play on each other is you would wait for somebody to sit down, and then you would pull the seat out from underneath of them. It was a brutal, brutal practical joke. It was played on me as well, right? I hope that teen students don't do this to one another anymore, right? But you would, you would start waiting for a person to sit down, and you would have to wait if you were really good at it. You would have to wait until the hip broke like this certain angled crease and you started seeing them rock back on their heels because when you saw them rock back on your heels, you knew they were were pot committed. There was no way they were coming out of it. And at that point, you pull the chair out and they fall flat onto the floor and then you all laugh at them and have a great time and, and all of that, right? Why do I bring up that illustration? That's what Satan does with things like living for yourself, living for your truth, living for prestige, power, money, comfort. When you go to put your full weight onto those things, you will find there is nothing there to catch you. What that means is this. In a fallen world, all hopes but one will be dashed. There is only one source of real hope, a hope that can't be dashed, a real hope that can bring us through the darkest of possible circumstances, and that's the living hope that's found in Jesus, who went toe-to-toe with death and delivered a knockout blow. If you're deciding to live apart from Jesus Christ, you have to come to terms with the fact that you have a limited amount of time to experience joy and pleasure because sorrow, hopelessness, and death are coming. But for the Christian, the joys that we experience now are only appetizers for a joy so delectable it will make our taste buds explode. And the sorrows we experience now are not precursors to death or to meaninglessness and hopelessness, but acute reminders that our only hope is in our living Savior who defeated death and is coming back to do away with sadness, sorrow, pain, and tears. He's coming back to do away with death's accomplices and restore creation. And all who put their hope in him in this life will possess him as our living hope forever in the life to come. Knowing this, right, knowing this enables us to endure all hardship, every trial, and all suffering, no matter how terrible that suffering may be. Christians are not promised that they'll be protected from suffering. Instead, we have a living hope to bring us through the suffering and to even bring us through death itself. Faith in Jesus produces true personal change and real hope. Finally, we see that it also produces a secure future. Look again with me at the passage. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Through faith, we receive a secure future. The idea of inheritance is one that I think most people would understand and make sense given what Peter has just said, right? Inheritances are gifts of land or money or other assets that parents leave to their children when they pass away. And given that Peter has just described how Christians have been born again into a new family with a new father, we now stand in line to receive a new inheritance from God our Father. But what is that inheritance? Well, if you go back to the Old Testament, what you find is that in the relationship between God and his people, the nation of Israel, the, the, the inheritance that God had prepared for the people of Israel was the land of Canaan. Think of Psalm 105. He is the Lord our God. He remembers his covenant forever, the covenant he made with Abraham, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan. As your portion for your inheritance. It was the land of Canaan that was to be the nation of Israel's inheritance. That was the land that God had promised to give them, the land that was like a restored Eden where God's people would dwell together with Him, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of true delight where the nation of Israel would dwell in the presence of God Himself. You might remember that when God brought them into the land, the tribes of Israel were arranged in a somewhat rectangular pattern around the very presence of God in the temple. He was at the the center of that land that God had given to them. He dwelled among them in the tabernacle and later the temple. God was at the center, and the people of Israel were arranged in camps around God's presence in the land of their inheritance, and it was a land flowing with milk and honey. It produced abundantly for the people of Israel. They were blessed in their fields and they were blessed in their flocks. The inheritance that God gave them was glorious as they lived in his presence. But the inheritance of the land of Canaan is not like the inheritance that Peter describes. Peter describes an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. That was not Canaan. God promised that Canaan would be those things if the people of Israel would obey his commandments and walk in his ways. But if they didn't, he promised that the land would be corrupted by their sin. And it was. The people sinned and defiled the land. They shed one another's blood. They oppressed one another. They took advantage of one another. They lied cheated, stole, they worshiped false gods, rejected God's ways, and so God brought the curses upon the land that he promised. The land that was flowing with milk and honey was struck with famine. The land where God's people were promised protection was invaded and defiled by the Assyrians and Babylonians, where the nation of Israel was sent into exile for their sins. And that unfading land became a fading memory in their minds. But that land of Canaan wasn't the ultimate inheritance that God had in mind for his people. You see, Canaan was only meant to be a picture of a greater land that God had prepared for his people. It was meant to be a picture of a truly imperishable, undefiled, and unfading land. A land where there is no more sin, no more pain, no more sorrow. No more death. A land where God's people dwell around the immediate presence of God in a restored creation forever. And that is the inheritance that now awaits us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ. That is the secure future that God is guaranteeing and protecting for all who have trusted in Jesus Christ. Just like with the idea of being born again, Peter isn't coming up with this idea of an inheritance on his own. He's drawing, again, straight from Jesus' teaching. What did Jesus tell his disciples? In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. This is what we later learn in the New Testament is the promise of the new heavens and new earth. After Jesus returns to judge the earth, God is going to purify the earth with fire and create a new heavens and a new earth, an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance prepared for those who've trusted in Jesus Christ. But more glorious than the promise of a new heavens and new earth is the promise that we will dwell in the immediate presence of God forever. You see, friends, it's there that Aaron's prayer for God's face to shine upon us will fully come true as we will gaze upon the beauty of his face, absorbing the rays of pure light that beam forth from his loving gaze. It's there that the God who is presently shrouded in darkness and clothed with the clouds will reveal his splendorous beauty and glory for all to see. It's there that the the God who feeds us now by his word will feed us by his hand. It's there that the God who speaks to us through his word will speak to us face to face, where we will hear the power of the voice of the Lord that strips the forest bare, and we will all cry, glory. It's there that we will behold myriads of angels arranged in festal assembly singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord almighty. There we will behold the saints who have gone before us, now glorified, dwelling together in perfect unity, living with one mind, being of one accord, and sweetly singing, worthy is our Savior King, loud let his praises ring, praise, praise, for I It's there that we will behold the throne of God in all its glory. And from the throne, we will drink from the river of the water of life, sparkling with crystalline clarity, pure and refreshing, giving eternal life to the soul. And there, we will no longer pant for the Lord like a deer pants for water, because we will lift up our heads from the river of life. And upon the throne, we will behold the king in all of his beauty. We will see the lion of the tribe of Judah and the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we will thank him and praise him forever because he is the only reason that any of us have claimed to that glorious inheritance in the first place. Friends, you think about the parable of the prodigal son. We were all the prodigal son in one way or another. We all rejected the father. We demanded that he give us the inheritance now. We wanted to spend it on worthless things. We didn't want heaven with him. We wanted to be our own God's. We wanted to have heaven on our own terms. We thought we could have joy, peace, pleasure, fulfillment, and hope apart from God, but that's impossible because He is the source of all joy, peace, pleasure, and fulfillment. But rather than leaving us to our own disastrous choices, even though we rejected Him, He sent His beloved Son, the one who never rejected Him, the one who always obeyed and who didn't just obey out of duty but out of pure delight he sent jesus to gather his wayward children jesus died on the cross bearing the judgment we deserved he took he took our inheritance of judgment so that we could have his inheritance of glory and hope And he offers that same inheritance to all who would believe in him today. Friends, if you put your trust in Jesus, you will be born again. You will be given a living hope, and you will be given a glorious and perfectly secure future. And for those who've trusted in Jesus, you can know your future is secure because God guarantees it's secure. Not just that the heavenly inheritance will be kept secure for you, but that you will be kept secure for it. Look again at the passage. We are those who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. To receive that glorious inheritance, we must exercise faith until the end. But but but, but that means it, it depends on me and I can't be sure that I'm going to continue to the end and continue exercising faith to the end. Wrong. While it's true you must continue to exercise faith, we have certainty that our future is secure because we are being guarded by God's power through faith. God's power protects us because his power is the means by which our faith is sustained. Peter wants to encourage you with with the truth that God will preserve your faith through all of the sufferings, through all of the trials, through all of the darkness of the valley of the shadow of death, and he will ultimately bring you to dwell in his glorious light. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but I will raise them up on the last day. True change, real hope, a secure future can be yours through faith in Jesus Christ today, is yours if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ already. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the Lord of life, the one who holds the keys to life and death and the power of both in your hands. You have the power to bring light or to create darkness, to bring death or bring everlasting life. We pray that you would be pleased to save all who are here today and to make us more like you by pouring out your spirit upon us. And we pray this all in your matchless and mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.